Matters Fall of 2018 live episode. We're so happy to see all of you here. If you haven't listened to us before, the Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that takes a look at case studies to see how global trends are affecting real lives. I'm your host, Nicholas Mortensen, and I'm pleased to be here with my panelists, Anna Von Spakowski and Emmy Lockwood. We're also pleased to introduce our special guest expert for this event, Dr. Katie Hassan from the Center of Genetics and Society in California. Please give her a warm welcome. So before we begin, Dr. Hassan, can you sort of tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, uh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to join the discussion today. Um, so my background is that I have a, a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley, and I currently work as the program director on genetic justice at the Center for Genetics and Society in Berkeley, California. Um, we are a public interest nonprofit uh, that advocates for responsible use and democratic governance of human genetic and reproductive technologies. And particularly, we're working to bring a social justice perspective and voices to conversations about these technologies. So, to begin, we've all been told that our genetic code is a key to the future, and with it, promises of a wiser, healthier, safer, and just better humanity. And this is the future that all of us can be a part of. With a spit kit and some of your genetic data, you can help science take on humanity's most dangerous diseases. You can help improve the human condition and maybe even help improve humanity itself. You can live a healthier life with a workout plan and diet tailored specifically to you and many, many more possibilities. All you have to do is sign up. The question is, do you want to sign up? Do the promises live up to the hype? And what's the catch? These are the questions we're going to be addressing tonight. So Dr. Hassan, before we go any further, can you sort of tell us more about genetic testing, what it looks like, and why it's been in the news so much recently? Sure. Um, so I can tell you that more than 12 million people have uh, sent in some of these spit kits to companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com to find out more about their DNA. Um, and this is a big chunk of what's happening in the genetic testing field, these direct-to-consumer tests that allow anyone to sort of send in um, their saliva and get back a report that tells them something about uh, their, um, their ancestry or uh, their health susceptibilities um, or a variety of more dubious claims like what kind of workout uh, they should have. And this is separate from the medical genetic testing um, that you would get right, prescribed by your doctor and accompanied by um, uh, genetic counseling, right, from a professional. So there are some big differences between those two. Um, a lot of the direct-to-consumer tests are are somewhat less reliable, um, particularly when it comes to something like health information. But the, the explosion in genetic testing seems to be mainly tied to the drop in price um, of DNA sequencing in particular and in the cost of these uh, direct-to-consumer kits. Um, and it's also probably due to a massive amount of advertising spending from these direct-to-consumer companies. Um, this advertising that appeals to people's desire to find out more about who they are and, and how to live um, a healthier life. Uh, but the companies have uh, their interest is in getting as big of a database of uh, our genetic information as they possibly can, right? Their business model is not necessarily making money selling the test to all of us, but rather um, selling that data that they've amassed um, in their own databases. Yeah, so 
we, we've heard about private companies amassing these databases. And Anna, can you tell us more about these private companies? What services are they offering in exchange for this? Sure. So one of the most attractive things about these genetic tests are the ability to really take your health into your own hands. And the idea is that through better information about possibly certain diseases that you have a predisposition towards, maybe certain cancers, in the future you'll be able to take steps that not only will make you healthier, but also will we'll be able to lower your healthcare costs. Beyond that, there are things you can look up right now, apps you can see that, um, for example, there's something called the John Hancock Vitality Program. This is actually part of a life insurance um, program where they will reduce the cost of your Apple Watch when you make healthy decisions that it then collects and sends to them. So the question to ask, well, this is for Dr. Hassan, do those health predictions you get from these tests, are they actually accurate? Like, would you consider that a credible sort of medical report? Um, I think any health information that you're getting from these direct-to-consumer genetic tests, right, not the ones prescribed by doctors, but the, um, the consumer tests really should be taken with a grain of salt or a lot of grains of salt. Um, they are not very reliable, and there have been some high-profile cases of people getting uh, completely contradictory information on something like um, susceptibility to early onset Alzheimer's, right? From two different companies, they got completely different answers. And when you add on to that these third-party services that let you sort of um, upload your data from one of the big companies like 23andMe and get access to information about an expanded range of, um, of health conditions, it gets even uh, sketchier at that point. So it shouldn't be relied on for um, for serious health decisions. Anything should be followed up with a doctor. And the thing I always hear with these private companies is, you know, read the terms of service because a lot of these services are free or heavily discounted because your genetic information or your information, more generally speaking, is the main product they're after. So how do these companies keep this data? Are they selling it or are they keeping it? Kind of what, what does that look like? Um, yeah, the, the companies are both using it internally for particular kinds of research, but also um, teaming up with academics and uh, selling it to, say, uh, large pharmaceutical companies with deals aimed at uh, drug development. Right. So there was a um, big announcement over the summer with 23andMe and GlaxoSmithKline um, entering a deal uh, for to give them exclusive access to some of the data that 23andMe has on their on their 5 million um, people who've taken their test, or the uh, around 80% of those 5 million people have agreed to share their data for, um, for research, and therefore uh, that is what they are selling. That was the biggest of the deals, but um, not the only one. They, they have deals with several companies, and that has uh, clearly been their, their business model all along to share that information. So you're talking about sharing genetic information with various companies as well as research interests. So, uh, Emmy, can you talk more about where that genetic data comes into play with those research groups? So when users test their DNA, they are asked whether they would like to opt in to participate in research, meaning that their DNA is shared with other um, organizations. So as Dr. Hasten said earlier, um, these researchers vary from internal research branches of the companies to public institutions such as the University of Chicago or pharmaceutical companies like uh, GlaxoSmithKline. 
And companies like 23andMe use catchy slogans like become a part of something bigger to persuade its users to share their DNA for research. However, most of the users are not aware of many of the privacy risks and implications of sharing their genetic information for research. Only 39% of research testing company, sorry, genetic testing companies take steps to remove personal information from user samples before sending them off to research. But anyway, it's very easy for these genetic researchers to reverse engineer the identity of associated with the DNA sample, meaning that even if one's DNA code, um, DNA sample is under an anonymous code, researchers can reverse um, track back and identify who the DNA belongs to. Another issue presented by sharing one's genetic information is that different companies have different levels of um, transparency, transparency regarding research partnerships. 23andMe leaves the identity of researchers in the fine print, fine print which most users do not read. The 23andMe users who consent to participate in research contribute to an average of 230 studies. And that's a lot of different research organizations and teams to have such sensitive information. So I guess the question is, why would I care that my information is being passed along to so many different research groups, or why should I even care that my data might not necessarily be anonymized? I gave away my genetic information to health science, so why does it really matter to me where it goes as long as it's going to researchers? Yeah, um, one reason you might care is that you might not necessarily agree with all of the research purposes that they would put your um, data to use for, right? There are, um, you know, when people uh, think about, right, handing over their DNA to help science, to help medical research, they're thinking of, you know, perhaps it'll be used to solve serious diseases um, and would, you know, help humanity in that way. Um, but maybe it's going to be used to, uh, you know, develop a very expensive drug for baldness, right? And that's not necessarily something that they had in mind. Or maybe it's going to be used for some kind of research that's controversial that they don't agree in, like connecting, uh, trying to connect race to intelligence or something like that. So that's one thing is that, you know, once you agree to it, you might not necessarily um, have control with or agree with the ways that it would be used um, after that point. Um, and another thing is just in terms of uh, privacy, right, the, the protections that the companies offer come mainly through their own uh, internal privacy policies, right? It's something that, um, you know, as Emmy mentioned, you have to click through a lot of information to find out exactly what their privacy policy is and who may have access to your data. Um, and there will always be a phrase at the end of that policy that says that uh, they can change it at any time, right? And let you know afterwards. Yeah. And the other question I have is, amongst these research firms, you know, the, these research institutions or firms that are gathering this data, have they been able to, have they had success with using this data? Are there any sort of big instances of big institutes or big firms really doing well or doing poorly? Or are there any successes or failure, like failure stories we can talk about? Um, I think in terms of these uh, private companies, they have, you know, some research that they've published um, on their own uh, blogs or even in, in academic journals, but um, I'm not sure that there's any 
sort of uh, big splashy successes that we could that we could point to. Yeah, and I think off the top of my head. And uh, one, it's, it's so there was CIRM, which is the uh, California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Uh, it was an institute that was formed by a ballot initiative uh, back in a more recent election that provided $3 billion to that institute to sort of research things along these lines. Have they been a successful group? Have they actually been able to, to fulfill their mandate? Yeah, CIRM is a very um, interesting case to think about, right? The CIRM is, is um, sort of, as you said, right, uh, initiated by a ballot proposition in California in 2004. It's set aside, right, in the constitution of the state that this money would be spent for stem cell research in particular, right? And the idea, uh, the promise behind um, the initiative, the way that it was advertised to California voters is that this would bring um, cures to the state. This would bring a lot of income to the state in terms of um, royalties from the discoveries that were made with this research money. Um, and in the years that it's been in operation, there are there have been some um, there are some clinical trials that are in process right now. There are things that are getting closer to being available in the clinic, but um, the idea that these, that putting this infusion of, of billions of dollars into this research, um, right, $3, million, $3 billion for the research and another $3 billion in terms of the, the interest on top of that, uh, so $6 billion altogether, the idea that that would bring um, cares and benefits relatively quickly has not, has not panned out. Gotcha. So that is, is something interesting to think about in terms of um, uh, a model, right? It's not exactly what's going on with these, these private genetic testing companies like 23andMe, but, um, but it's, a, it's an interesting case to think about how uh, long it takes to get to these kinds of benefits and how, um, how much hype there can be surrounding it. Yeah. And... The research isn't just exploring the human genome, but there's also work going towards editing or modifying sort of human genetics. And can you talk more about that? Because I understand that the scientific classifications are a lot more complex than we usually know or really care or care to know. Sure. Yeah. One of the the promises of um, of genetic research in terms of health. I mean, one is something that we often. Uh, before we get to gene editing, we hear a lot about uh, precision medicine or personalized medicine and the idea that um, by having everyone's uh, genetic sequence, we would be able to personalize treatment specifically to their, the cancer that they have or uh, for in terms of which drugs would be able to uh, be used to treat their particular illness. Um, and then beyond that, right, is the idea that we might start editing people's DNA in order to um, treat or cure diseases. And when we're talking about these kinds of medical treatments, we're, we're talking about something that we call gene therapy or somatic gene editing, where you are editing the, the body cells of the, of the patient, the adult or child who has an illness, um, in order to uh, change or correct a sequence that is causing their illness or condition. Um, and so there has been some progress in that over the years, um, although um, you know there it's the research, the original gene therapy research um, has been going on for uh, over 20 years, um, and then more recently there have been expectations that with the advent of CRISPR, a, a 
cheaper and more accurate gene editing technology that we might um, move much more quickly towards uh, these kinds of treatments, although it's still very early um, in that process. Uh, there's also another kind of gene editing that uh, we can talk about, which is referred to as germline editing or um, inheritable genetic modification. And this is the, uh, the idea that you would edit sperm or egg cells or very early embryos um, and that the changes that you would make would be throughout the resulting person's um, all of their cells and would be passed down to their offspring from then on. And this is sometimes talked about as a way to uh, prevent passing on a genetic disease, um, but it's not a form of treatment, right? There's no existing person with an illness that, that's being treated. Um, and also we actually have other ways already that we can prevent passing on an inherited genetic disease if we know about it in advance through um, embryo screening techniques like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So the medical justification for germline editing in particular is uh, tenuous. Yeah, and there's one case, I think there's a recent uh, anniversary, and Emmy, you can speak more to this, the case of Jesse Gelsinger, who was one of, well, Emmy, can you tell us more about, about him? Well, first off, the case of Jesse Gelsinger was in 1999, so 20 years ago, over almost 20 years ago. And this was a landmark case because it brought about the uh, importance of the discussion of informed consent. Now, Jesse Gelsinger was a 17-year-old who suffered from a rare metabolic disorder caused by a single genetic defect. Most children who suffer this disorder die at a young age. So Jesse and his family decided to enroll in a gene therapy clinical trial run by the University of Pennsylvania. On September 13, 1999, Jesse was inject injected with a formula that was meant to grow healthy cells in his liver and therefore curing his disease, uh, curing his disorder. Four days later, he died. Now, the case sparked ethical controversy um, in the genetic field because of informed consent. Firstly, the Gelsinger family were under the impression that the animal testing phase had been successful, when in fact, two monkeys had died in the animal testing phase. And additionally, the family was not told that other human participants had suffered badly from the injection. Um, but finally, Dr. Wilson, the lead researcher of the trial, had financial interest in making sure that the trial succeeded. He would be able to patent the medicine and make money from treating other patients. The Jesse Gelsinger case is a tragic story about the importance of informed consent in the field of genetic testing. If the Gelsinger family had known all the facts and had known of the low probability of success, they probably wouldn't have chosen to enroll Jesse in the experiment. And even going beyond the informed consent problem, you see here that a lot of these treatments have a certain profit motive tied to them. And can you speak more to that? Is that profit motive going to carry a risk for future patients? Sorry, could you repeat that oh, question? Yeah. So there's a strong profit motive here for a lot of, a lot of these gene therapies, a lot of these uh, gene-based medicines. Does that profit motive create a danger for patients? Yeah, I think, um... You know, profit motive can uh, definitely 
uh, create risk down the line, especially in early stages, especially um, even in academic research contexts where universities are more and more um, working to or want to patent, right, to patent the um, the discoveries of their scientists and researchers. Um, so even in the, the academic context where it seems like you would not have the profit motive, there is uh, some, some drive there, right, to be the first, to get there faster, um, to be able to, to get the patent. So I think that that's something that we really have to keep an eye on, right? Are there conflicts of, in conflicts of interest and particularly financial conflicts of interest um, in these research studies that are, that are affecting the way that they are being run and, and putting um, trial participants or patients in general at risk. Um, the Jesse Gelsinger case really uh, nearly stopped gene therapy research for um, you know, 10 or 20 years after it happened, right? Because it uh, recognized the need to slow down that research and not push ahead and funding um, disappeared for gene therapy research for a while. So I think that that is a case that really um, made scientists pay attention to the idea that you have to uh, you have to look out for the safety of these patients in the clinical trials. And even going beyond that, especially with the editing of sperm and egg cells, you're you're getting into the realm of changing what it means to be human, or at least through a medical treatment, making your offspring or making your entire gene line objectively better than the rest. And does that bring a certain moral and ethical quandary? Is there a potential for abuse there, or will that be spread equitably amongst everybody? Well, I would say there's there's absolutely potential for abuse, but I, I would even, you know, step back from the idea that, that we're objectively uh, making these offspring better, right? I think the, the perception is that's what we would do, and certainly um, if, if reproductive gene editing became commercially available, that would absolutely be the advertising to parents, right? You need to give your child the best start in life. You have to do it now before they're even born. Um, you should, right, attempt to improve them in these various ways. And whether or not that's successful, um, the perception that these offspring were better than the rest of us would, could absolutely have effects of increasing inequality um, in schools, in the workplace, in, in society in general. So it would not even have to be effective in order to, um, to increase inequality in that way. But the, the bigger question is when you start to identify some people as, uh, in theory, biologically superior to others, right? We're going down the same road of uh, eugenics, of racism, of these other methods of defining groups biologically and, and arranging them in hierarchies. So um, that opens up a whole range of ethical questions and concerns about the societal implications of taking the inequalities that we already have um, and intensifying them and adding new ones on top of that even. But are the risks here of sort of reopening or even opening new avenues for inequalities or intensifying existing ones, is that risk worth, you know, worth the chance of making people's lives better? Is this something that we should even be pursuing? Is this something that we should, you know, deliberately turn back from? And can we even turn back from it? Uh, we can absolutely turn back from it. Um, you know, reproductive gene editing, right? Uh, germline editing in order to uh, begin a pregnancy, right? And create future people 
is not something that's happening currently. And in fact, it's something that has been uh, prohibited by dozens of countries around the world by uh, binding international treaties that say that inheritable genetic modification should not happen. Now, there is some research into germline gene editing that's proceeding in a few labs around the world. And um, that has really uh, begun to push the conversation about whether those policies should change. But I think that um, you know, we, we can and, and should um, hold that prohibition. Right? The risks that we would introduce, um, the unknown risks to future children who are born or even future generations, um, and the chances of increasing social inequality far outweigh the, um, the, the hypothetical benefits that are being promised. Right? Um, in terms of preventing the transmission of disease, as I said earlier, we have other ways that we can do that that are already being used and that are safe and effective, they come with their own moral and ethical questions in terms of, you know, selecting embryos and making choices about, um, you know, who, who should live, but they don't um, introduce these new forms of safety risks and these new forms of inequality um, that we would be uh, opening the door to if we headed down the road of reproductive gene editing. And going away from the research and actual gene line improvement area, there's also the final promise that in both the research and consumer world, genetic data has already kind of been imprinted or it's, well, actually it's a newer thing, but in law security areas, we've been using genetic data for decades. And Anna, is, any, is there anything new that we can expect with these new technologies and these new developments? Yeah, absolutely. So going back to these direct-to-consumer genetic tests. We're seeing actually the use of them by law enforcement. A lot of you probably saw and heard a lot about the capture of the Golden State Killer, who was a serial rapist and murderer in the 70s and 80s. And the lead detective had been working on this case for over two decades, really wasn't having success. But he turned to the use of these genetic databases and was actually able to find the killer and through a series of third and fourth cousins and eventually track them down. Um, but along the way, it does raise some legal questions that are really important to talk about and that we're probably going to see brought up again in the next few years. So finding the Golden State Killer, he actually used a website called GD Match, which is free. And it's slightly different from websites like 23andMe because it actually um, compiles all of the data found through many different of these private websites. So it was free to use. Um, they didn't need to subpoena them for any information. They, um, so it, it was, but before that, they actually had a series of false leads. And when they were doing that, they were using a private company called Family Tree DNA. And in that, they actually subpoenaed them for the identity and the payment information of the suspect. They did comply, but they didn't notify the user because they didn't want to um, get in the way of the investigation at all. And then that suspect was actually cleared after they were compelled to give their DNA. They had a warrant, but they didn't actually need to use it because they did it um, willingly. So after that, they were able to find the actual killer. And 
this is kind of new territory. We have some precedent that I'm going to go into, a couple court cases. The first one was the capture of the Grim Sleeper, who is actually another California serial killer. And this, they were able to capture him after he discarded a piece of pizza in the trash and they found it and used that DNA. And this wasn't deemed a privacy concern because it was discarded DNA. Now, the second case is Marilyn v. King. And this was a man who was arrested for a lesser crime um, and state law compelled him to give a cheek swab, which is a DNA sample. And that matched an earlier rape case, which he was then um, convicted of. So on appeal, they cited the Fourth Amendment that this state law um, was a violation, but they upheld this decision saying that it was a legitimate police booking procedure similar to other biometrics that they already collect, like fingerprints. So with the Golden State Killer case, you know, trial hasn't happened yet, so we'll see what kind of defenses they try to use, what they do on appeal. So a lot of jurisprudence and a lot of precedents just aren't set in stone yet? Absolutely. Yeah. So really, we're going to be one. I think one of the main questions we're going to be looking at is whether law enforcement can compel these private companies to reveal certain data um, information, identity of users. And going forward from the security impact as well, um, if you've all been watching the news yesterday, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, decided to reopen a longstanding spat uh, regarding her Native American heritage uh, with the announcement that she had confirmed that heritage through a genetic test. Uh, she was probably about six, ten generations distant from that, but she still used that as confirmation of her Native American heritage. And the question to ask Dr. Hassan is, you're seeing these tests sort of be, being used in political theater. Do you see a risk of sort of ancestry battles or sort of battles being waged for people's ancestry that are going to be enabled by these genetic testing? Do you see any kind of social or political consequences of these tests being widely available? Yeah, I think, um, you know, talking about the, uh, the use of uh, DNA tests in political theater, as you said, right, I think it does open a really concerning precedent. Um, the idea that you would start using DNA tests as some kind of purity test in, in a way for, um, for politicians, I think is very dangerous. There have been one or two cases in the past where you know politicians, um, one in, in Turkey in 2008, was asked to show his DNA test to prove his ethnic background. Um, and so I think that especially in this current political context where we're seeing rising nationalism, anti-immigrant sentiment, open racism, uh, bringing these tests into the mix seems extremely dangerous. And just in general, the, the focus on ancestry testing through, um, through to direct-to-consumer DNA testing has this broader uh, social effect of reinforcing the idea that race and ethnicity are biological and, and genetic uh, categories, right? And this is a, a, a dangerous and discredited idea um, that I don't think we want to start reinforcing and recirculating um, in our current political moment. So throughout all these promises, the research promises, the security promises, as well as the promises of just better services and better lives for all of us, there's a feeling that everything is up in the air. Jurisprudence isn't set. A lot of the research is still fairly new. And a lot of the hypotheticals uh, in, on the scientific side have yet to be realized or just starting to be realized. 
And whether or not these will actually be realized in a way that is beneficial to all of us is yet to be seen. There's an idea that everything's still up in the air and you're giving away your genetic information now when you can't take it back. And the question is, would you recommend that any of us do that? Would you recommend that anyone here take a genetic test or really give away our genetic information until things have fallen into place? I, mean, I would recommend thinking very carefully before uh, sending your spit off to one of these uh, private companies in particular. As you said, there's a lot that's up in the air. Um, we don't have clear uh, regulation in terms of uh, clear and enforceable regulation in terms of who can access this information, when and for what reasons. Um, and, you know, it's really uh, putting your trust in these large companies that they are going to uh, protect that information for you, right? There are a number of uh, companies that could want to get access to this information, right? Uh, we know that in the US, due to GINA law, the health insurance companies and employers aren't allowed to um, use genetic information to discriminate, but there are major loopholes to this law for life insurance, for the military, for education. Um, and, and so I think that it's, um, important to just really think about the ways that this could be used in, in unintended ways, right? Secondary uses of this data could go in a lot of different directions. We can think of the case of Facebook, which amassed a lot of information from us that we gave away quite, quite freely, um, and hadn't really thought about ways that it could be use, but with the incentive of monetizing that data um, or that people have found very creative and nefarious uses for it. So is that something that would happen with genetic data as well? We don't know yet. So one thing I want to avoid doing is just throwing up our arms and saying, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's going to be horrible. The future is dark. Uh, but <laughs> the thing is, are, are there any initiatives? Is anyone working to make sure that as these things fall into place, that they will fall into place that will be beneficial to, to us all? Because there is great promise here. We just don't know if it's going to end up that way yet. Yeah, I think there are a lot of steps that are being taken in the right direction. Um, California actually recently passed the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, this was mostly in response to Facebook selling of data to third parties. So it's aimed at tech companies. It's not aimed at genetic testers, but it is one of the most strict privacy laws in the US. So I could see it being used maybe as a template in the future or really just starting the conversation about privacy. Um, another good thing is Chuck Schumer, who issued a press release calling on the FTC to look at these genetic testers, look at their transparency, their accuracy. So some steps in the right direction. And Dr. Haston, can you speak to this? Sort of where do you see these trends going in the future and do you see anybody else trying to make sure that we steer this in the right direction? Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Glitch. Okay, um, you know, one thing that we're seeing is um, actually increasing calls for legislation and regulation of um, genetic testing companies, right? Rules that can be enforced that uh, cover what what can be done with this information and when and by whom. Um, and so I think that that is something that people should continue to talk about. Another um, 
question that was brought up in the in the case of the Golden State Killer, right, where we have law enforcement now using these um, public uh, open databases um, rather than just their own uh, law enforcement right databases brings up a lot of questions because in um, they're not just looking for the, the specific uh, suspect that they have, but they're searching through hundreds and hundreds of distant family members, right, to try to find this person. And so this form of uh, familial search is something that they have done through their own databases in the past. Um, and several states have come up with regulation that have put um, a lot of restrictions on when exactly they're able to do those kinds of searches, right, what kinds of cases um, and for what reasons. So this is a case where the, uh, the public consumers, not only people who choose to upload their genetic information into this open database, but to many, many of their relatives who have no choice in that matter, right, actually have fewer protections um, than, than people who are in the law enforcement databases. So that I think is another area to, to look into for protecting consumers. And beyond the obvious thing of, you know, write your congressman, write your congresswoman, um, is there anything that all of us can do to make sure that this is steered in the right direction? Oh, um, I would say definitely be looking more into these issues. As you mentioned earlier, these issues seem uh, and are technically complex, and yet we all have, you know, access to and opinions about the way that they can be um, uh, used responsibly, right, governed democratically. We, we really need a broad and inclusive public discussion about these issues and particularly about their societal consequences. Um, so I think, you know, reading up and, and developing your thinking around those um, will definitely be a big part of uh, making that conversation happen. Don't step away from it because it's too hard. Many of you are students, uh, many of you here were students as well, and you can't run away from a challenge or an intellectual challenge because it's difficult. Whether you like it or not, whether or not you're interested in this field of science, this field of science is very interested in you. <laughs> Read up, talk to people, write your congressman, talk to each other, and make sure you're actually informed about these issues. There is great potential for all of us to benefit wonderfully from this but there's also equal potential for things to go in the opposite direction. I'm not a Luddite, none of us here are Luddites, but you have, to be, you have to understand that if you don't engage with this process, the process will continue on anyway. That's all we have for content, but we also do have a line for uh, mics for question and answer in the back. If you'd like to ask a question, please go back there. Uh, we'll take the next five, 10 minutes to answer any questions you may have. Yeah, it's on. Okay, hi. I'm Ella. I have a question um, kind of for everyone, also you guys. So something that I've kind of noticed you um, are dealing a lot with, like, now that we've made it this, this decision about whether or not it's good or bad, what do we do? Or if we don't really know, we have to still deal with the technical aspects. But I think something that um, we ought to consider is this idea that recently we've kind of allowed technology to get so far that instead of developing ethics before the technology is um, invented, we now have to develop ethics in reaction to the technology that already exists. So especially in this context of 
well, we have this capability of doing these things with our genes, yet what is the ethics around it? I think one of the big questions that I'm wondering is, so what in the sense that if it really comes down to whether or not um, it's okay to give our genetic information away, I think there's also the question, the ethical question of like, what is our relationship with that information? I think we would all agree that different than just like our age and our birth date, something about our genetic code is a little bit more personal, but the ethical question of why still stands, and that's something, um, would you agree that before we can even get into the deal, the, the issues of laws to regulate this, we first have to figure out what is it about this code that is so special, um, different than other information, and how can we go about kind of, if we can, put a bit of a, um, a stop to the technology before we figure out the ethics, if we should do that. Yeah, so Dr. Hauser, would you like to take that question? Sure, I heard about half of it, so maybe could you give a quick uh, recap? Does this one work better? Your neck. Yeah, no, so the uh, question was, whether or not we should actually be engaging with the technical questions before we answer the ethical questions. Sort of, should we be solving the ethical issues then moving forward on the science or should we be dealing with them both at the same time? And is it practical simply because the fact that the technology exists so we can't obviously pretend it doesn't, um, but is there a way that we can kind of retroactively and also prevent this sort of situation again where we have the technology but not the ethical basis for dealing with it? Okay, um, yeah, I think, I mean, there's often this conception that the, the technology is flying ahead, uh, regulation, ethics, societal discussions can't keep up. Um, but I mean, in the case of something like gene editing, you know, we've, we've had a lot of these ethical and um, discussions about uh, the ethics of it, the societal implications um, 20 years ago and at the, when the idea that reproductive cloning was coming closer, um, it really spurred a lot of these conversations to happen. Um, and, you know, in places where this conversation came up to the, the legislative level, this is where many countries prohibited, right, inheritable genetic modification. So the idea that, um, that the, the ethics discussion hasn't been happening or isn't happening um, isn't exactly true in this case, right? And the, the idea is that we need to uh, take that discussion of the ethics seriously um, and remember it as the, as the science is moving forward. I think often there's this idea that, um, you know, in the, in the face of these, uh, the amazing promises that these technologies could bring, right? The promises that they will uh, better life for humanity, um, the, discussion of things like the history of eugenics or um, the ways that the technologies could be misused, uh, those are sort of figured as, um, as fear-mongering, right, as, as being completely hypothetical and out of the range of reality. Um, and the, the technical or medical promises of these technologies are seen as much more certain, right? The benefits are seen as certain, but the drawbacks that are pointed out are, are seen as hypothetical. But I think that we need to reverse that in some ways, right? Because we're talking about a history of misuses that has already happened, right? We have historical evidence that things can go in this direction of eugenics, and we haven't necessarily uh, fully discussed or dealt with that history and its um, 
the ways that it still persists into the present, right? So I think that um, that we ought to uh, take those discussions more seriously, question the, the hype around these technologies um, as well. I don't know if that, how much of the question I got, but. Hello, I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for um, joining us today from across the country. Um, well, I think it's interesting that we always, as humans, try to kind of categorize everything as whether it's ethically good or bad. Um, I do think there's a lot of gray area of instances where the information can be used for good purposes or bad purposes or just area in between. Do you think it would be possible and or kind of ethically viable to maybe set rules or boundaries as to what the research can be used for, so instead of, or the information. So instead of, you know, allowing all, t all research to be done with all um, of this private company's um, information collected from the population, or just to prohibit it all instead, is there some sort of way where maybe through public policy and kind of some, like, IRB board for ethics uh, delineate between which studies it would be ethically okay to use it? Sure. Yeah, so I think, I, I would say absolutely. I, I don't think it has to be an all or a nothing thing. Um, and that's something that the FDA is really going to have to tackle. Um, I know that, I, don't, I couldn't tell you the exact specifics of it, but they had been drafting some regulations under the Obama administration, and I believe they've sort of been tabled for the past few years um, under the Trump administration. So. We'll see um, how the FDA is able to handle it. Um, I don't know if Dr. Hassan can talk about um, specific regulations or if there are options that aren't just more regulation. Um, I mean, I, I would I agree that it doesn't have to be all research is prohibited or or none of it is. But um, but I think we do need more protections for people and. Um, the importance of regulation is to have it not just be at the the uh, the desire of the companies themselves, right? Making these decisions. So, um, you know, regulation is one way to keep those sorts of things enforceable. Um, this is from Facebook, not from me. Um, this is from Nico, and he's wondering, um, it seems like a lot of regulatory policies are very reactive rather after data leaks or bad press around topic. Have there been any proactive policies to encourage companies to protect genetic data or incentivize companies to protect genetic data? Dr. Kowski, can you speak to that? Um, it's not necessarily regulation, but there, there was a recent sort of uh, consortium of these direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies that um, signed on, signed a pledge for best practices in terms of uh, protecting the consumer's data from genetic testing. So it did include some good provisions, but one of the, um, in terms of needing to inform consumers if they, um, if they're data has been 
requested or handed over to law enforcement or to tell them about the ways that it's being used for research. Um, but it did include a very large loophole in terms of not covering the um, anonymized, aggregated data um, that that we brought up before, right? So um, that was not covered in, in these protections. Hello, um, I have a question for our expert. Thanks for being here today. Um, I was, you were talking earlier about uh, how um, some of the um, gene sequencing that exists uh, for um, like eggs and sperm um, isn't necessarily a good thing, but you had mentioned that there were some other processes that exist that are currently like more accepted for um, preventing the uh, genetic diseases from being passed on. Um, I was just curious to hear more about what those processes um, are, um, if you could just talk a little bit more about those. Great, I think if I heard correctly, the question was about what are the alternatives to germline editing that I mentioned that yes. exists already? Yeah. Yes, okay. Um, yes, yeah, so what I was mentioning was uh, called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and it's a form of, um, so, you know, in in vitro fertilization, the embryos would be made and they can uh, take a few cells from each and test them for um, specific illness that the, um, that the parents are concerned about uh, passing on. And then you can choose to um, implant or go forward only with those embryos that that don't have the variant that um, that that aren't affected by um, by that condition or illness, and so that's something that's been in use um, for a while um, for some conditions, uh, and it can be used by almost all um, couples who uh, who are concerned about passing on. A genetic condition. Thank you. Hello. Hey, um, my name's Sean. So my question, um, first, I, I agree with the thesis that they should be left up to legislators, that a lot of these questions are far more ethically challenging than should be allowed to companies to make the decisions. Uh, my question is that if we do have this awareness, this uh, awareness with respect to these legislators, there is a growing movement of populism, not just in the United States, but in the whole entire world right now. And my concern is that if we do leave it up to legislators, um, how would those legislators be affected by this movement of populism, by the general public maybe possibly pushing for these technologies? And if they start to see these benefits, how will that affect legislators making the proper ethical decisions with respect to these technologies? Yeah, so. Yeah, um, so I can, he was asking about um, by, by putting the burden of these regulations on legislators, there's a risk that in many countries where a populist movement is growing within those legislators like the United States, uh, Eastern Europe, other, uh, all around the world, that would the rise of populism distort those legislators as they are publishing those legislations and could possibly have the opposite intended effect, you know, where we're trying to take away those regulations from private companies where the risk would still actually remain? Um, I, that could potentially be a risk. I mean, that's a, um, I don't know, it's, 
I think that supports the need for having really robust public participation, right? That, um, that includes both uh, education and the inclusion of um, many groups, right? Not just uh, individuals, not just scientists, not just ethicists, not just legislators, but could also include organized civil society, um, and, uh, and that particularly features the voices of those who would be affected by um, the use of these technologies. One of the things we learned 20 years ago was that essentially a genetic mo modification for cloning uh, continued on in those countries uh, which did not ban, and as a result, uh, we, we did get uh, the appropriate successful cloning. Uh, shouldn't we be looking more at a positive way of moving all of these ideas forward rather than restrictive banning? So the question is, should we be focused on moving these technologies forward rather than restricting them? Uh, uh, moving them forward uh, in uh, suggesting ethical ways to move them forward to provide uh, positive guidelines which move us in the correct direction rather than restrictive guidelines which keep uh, research from occurring. Um, I mean, I think that the, the first question is, do we want the research to move forward, right? And that that's something that should be open to um, a broad societal discussion, um, particularly when we're talking about reproductive, um, reproductive germline editing, right? We're talking about something that affects um, all of us, right? All of society that needs a, a broader group of people to have a say. So to restrict the question to um, in what ways should it move forward, right? How should it move forward in positive versus negative ways? I think we need to back up and make sure that we start with the question still on the table of do we want to move forward with this research at all? Um, and the, the objection is often made if we, if we restrict or prohibit it in some places, won't it just move other places um, in the world. And uh, yes, that's a risk, but that's, um, you know, we still continue to make laws and regulations even though uh, we can't necessarily enforce them everywhere in the world, so. So that's all we have for today. Um, before we go, I have several people I'd like to thank. Uh, first, I'd like to thank doc Dr. Uh, Katie Hassan for coming on and all of her help with the research as well as her being here for the episode. You know, she really helped put this together and I really, really enjoyed working with her and I'm very thankful for her help. So if you could please give her a round of applause. I would also and like to thank all of you. Oh yeah. I'd also like to thank our technical director, Andy Carluccio, who's out of the room right now, but he's very much the other man who makes this entire podcast happen. He does wonderful work, the videos, the slideshows, the promos you have every week, as well as the technical content is all him. He's one of my best friends. I'm privileged to call him one of my best friends. I want to give him a round of applause, even though he's not in the room. <laughs> Thank you.
also like to thank our panelists here, Emmy Lockwood and Anna von Spakowski. Uh, they have put in, they've been here since pretty much the first week of the, of the school year putting in this work. It's the middle of midterms. They have done phenomenal research. They have been here for practices. They have spent far more time than they wanted to around me getting this stuff figured out. <laughs> and for that, I think they do also uh, deserve a round of applause. I'd also like to thank Stephanie and the rest of the Miller Center. Uh, it's not every day that a student group like us gets to be in a space this fancy, and I really appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate all the help, and I appreciate everything here and the opportunity to host our episode here. So please give them a, 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 a round of applause. <laughs> and finally, uh, because all of your hands hurt, there are a couple other people I want to uh, thank. So Anna Shaw, Metro, Emma Ross, and Vanessa Ravia have all really, really helped this project in different ways, either with technical assistance, research assistance, bouncing ideas off of, They're, some of them are here, some of them aren't, but they were all very, very helpful. If you're here and I named you, please stand. If you please give them a warm a round of applause. And finally, I'd like to thank the International Relations Organization. Uh, they have sponsored our podcast. They have been our parent organization from, from since day one. They have provided help. They have been a great, wonderful parent organization. I love being a part of that club. And I'd just like to thank them for all of their help and support. And that's all we have for today, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you for your great questions and for being a wonderful audience. Uh, it was truly a wonderful experience preparing this and putting this on for you all. And I hope you have a great night. Thank you. <laughs>